Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Chase Jarvis Live Show here on Creative Live. You guys know this show. This is the show where I sit down with the world's top creators, entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and I do everything in my power to get them to share their brains with you. And with me, of course, there's a little bit of self-service here. Um, I'm also trying to unpack actionable and valuable insights to help you live your dreams in career and hobby and in life. My guest today, old Bane guy, dropped out, did some cool stuff with some charity stuff, and now has a new... No. <laughs> this guy is one of the most talented, hardworking, brilliant people I know. His name is Adam Braun. Adam, he the things that I was just jesting about, he has done all of those things, but he's done them to like, you know, what's the spinal tap thing? He, he goes to 11. Adam is the author and entrepreneur that you guys probably know from Pencils of Promise, one of the, I feel like there's a whole new generation of non-for-profits that has, you know, like Pencils of Promise, Charity Water that are breaking through using technology to tap into not just your wallets either, but your, there's storytellers, they're doing a great job of bringing the work that you do to support these nonprofits are doing a great job of demonstrating that through providing access and video, telling great stories about the work that they do. Adam is the founder of Pencils of Promise. This organization creates schools and a handful of other products that bring education to underserved populations in rural poverty. Poverty, And this is uh, I think it's Africa, Asia, all over the planet. Um, and he's also the author of the book by the same name, Actually, it's a little bit different, but The Promise of a Pencil, New York Times bestseller. And he's the founder also of a new startup, which is where we spend a lot of our time. I'd say most of our time talking uh, a startup called Mission U. Uh, he gets into the details, but if you don't want to pay any tuition and you want to learn from amazing folks, if that's interesting to you, you're going to want to pay attention. It's a one-year intensive skill-based school with zero upfront tuition. Instead, what you give them is a percentage of your income when you land that first job. And basically, they guarantee you a job. If that idea sounds interesting, you're going to want to pay attention because we talk about Mission U. In short, I love this convo. I love this human. Adam is amazing. We've been friends for probably maybe four years now, but this is the first time we've recorded a conversation. We sat down with the goal of, of providing some value for anybody outside ourselves. It's usually just been me and him at a bar in South by Southwest. Boy, what we talk about a lot of the issues of traditional education in this thing. And, and if you, well, obviously it's a very important subject for me, given Creative Live, given the fact that I think that the educational system is letting so many of us down, ourselves, our kids, continuing education. But more important than just griping, we talk about solutions. And this is about two founders, me and Adam, who are passionate about making education work for you. Um, we also talk about why he walked away from a career in management consulting. So if you are living in a career right now that you don't love, Adam dropped out of Bain, no less, one of the top um, management consulting companies in the world. Um, the top, you know, that's the elite firm probably. And he dropped out of that to dedicate himself to his passion. So if you're one of those people, this is an important episode for you. We also get into the topic I've been touching on a lot lately called balance. And I put out a video not too long ago about the myth of work-life work balance. Adam has some really important and interesting uh, points of view that we get into on this one. He speaks super candidly about the trade-offs between the work that you want to do. The And he's a, a father, to, new father to twins. So if 
you're trying to manage your career and kids, you'll want to hear from him as well. And he also shares some of the habits and hacks that he has developed to sort of maximize the benefits of when he does trade off and minimize the impact on both his family and work. Some really interesting stuff that I hadn't heard before. So without further ado, let's get into the show. But whoa, whoa, whoa. before we do, I do want to get a quick word in from our sponsor. This episode of Chase Jarvis Live Show is brought to you by Creative Live. Creative Live is the world's largest and best platform for creative and entrepreneurial education. And right now you're saying, wait a minute, isn't that the company that you started? Yes, it is. It is my company, but they make this show possible. And if you don't know anything about Creative Live, you must check it out. It's where Pulitzer Prize winners, New York Times bestsellers, the best of the best teach photo, video, art design, music and audio, craft and maker, and the ability to make a living and a life in all of those disciplines. There is free content there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And there's also more than 10,000 hours of content for you to access on demand. You guys know I'm a huge believer in the power of daily habits. And today, Creative Live, as a part of the sponsor announcement, wants you to know that they have a new, very powerful way to make education a part of your daily routine. That would be the Creative Live iPhone, iPad, and Apple TV apps. They're all free, and they let you watch all of the Creative Life classes that are on-air streaming for free, anything you already own, and on the iPhone and iPad apps, you can watch one daily lesson of your choosing for free. That is one of 25,000 lessons for free, which is super, (laughs) super gnarly. To get those apps, go to the App Store, uh, iTunes, and search Creative Live, or go to creativelive.com slash apps. There you go. Now, let's get into the show. Good Good to be here. It is good. Yeah. It's been a while. I know. We were, it's, it's I was remarking to these guys, like, I, I think it's been almost two years since I was actually in your flesh. Yes. Not in yes. your flesh? No, since we were in the flesh. Yeah, yeah, you were not in my flesh. But, <laughs> that would but. be awkward. <laughs> um, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Congratulations. Uh, I was uh, remarking before we started rolling the cameras that, I don't know, like two weeks ago, I mean, I, I see your stuff occasionally just because we're in the same friend circle. Yeah. But all of a sudden, Adam was everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it was that was because by design. You, yeah, you launched a new thing. Yeah. Tell us about your thing. Yeah, so um, recently launched is Mission U. Uh, Mission U is a college alternative for the 21st century. And the real aim, the, the, the goal of Mission U is to prepare students for the jobs of today and tomorrow debt-free. Uh, we have a fundamentally broken college system. And uh, seeing it through my wife's eyes, uh, it, it really gave me a pretty first-hand exposure to uh, the other side of what has happened to so many young people in this country that bought into college as the pathway to their dreams and ended up being uh, actually harmed much more than they would helped. And so, you know, after eight years of Pencils of Promise, I really wanted to, to focus on education here at home. And uh, Mission U was, was the um, creation. Sweet. We're going to put a pin in that because you mentioned Pencils of Promise. And for those of you who don't know at home, I'm, I'm assuming you do, but Adam is the founder and CEO of a nonprofit called Pencils of Promise, which brings education to underserved populations? Yeah, all across the developing world. So so I was the CEO for, I guess, six, seven years. Yeah. After, um, you know, at the time I was uh, 24, turning 25. I'd spent a lot of my early 20s um, backpacking and traveling through the developing world. And and that was really my, my, like, greatest love at that point in time. 
And uh, you know, I just had a habit of asking one child in every country that I went through a very simple question. It was, if you could have anything in the world, what would you want most? And they'd write it down on a piece of paper. And I, I figured I'd have this maybe collage of global interests of children when I got back uh, home and you know, to my dorm room. And in India, this, this young street beggar said, if he could have anything in the world, he'd want a pencil. And so I gave him my pencil. He was so excited about it. And I learned he had never been to school before. And you know, all these other kids start coming, running up like pen, you know, pencil. And um, after that, as as somebody who backpacked through you know 50, 60 countries um, in that probably five to seven year period, um, the one thing I always brought with me was pens and pencils because um, naturally, actually relatively introverted. But if you go into a rural village or into a market, you know, in Ecuador, and you just sit down with a pen and a pencil and you offer it to a child, not only are they going to engage, but their families yeah. going to engage, their siblings, their parents. And so it was really my way to kind of understand all these local cultures. And then eventually, um, you know, my grandmother was, was turning 80. She's a Holocaust survivor. And I really wanted to honor her in her lifetime. At the time, both, you know, my, my grandfathers had all passed away. And, and I wanted mom, my grandmother, to know how much she meant to myself and, and all of us. And I just thought the most powerful way that I could honor her would be to build a school. And I wasn't sure how I would do it, but I spent all the time in the communities. I was like, I know that very little money goes a very long way. Uh -huh. And I had all this training from a background in finance, and I was working at Bain in the time. Um, you know, right now the number one rated firm in the world to work by uh, the employees. And um, so, you know, I put $25 in a bank account, and I asked friends to give donations for my birthday to help build one school. 20 bucks um, for a Halloween party was was the start. And you know, we we. Crowdsource now. This was yeah, late 2008. Before, there was no the, such thing. There was right? no word. I yeah. mean, I remember going around. So you got to keep in mind, it's October of 2008 in New York City, <laughs> right? Yeah. So Lehman Brothers declared bankruptcy three weeks before um, I, I, you know, founded Pencils of Promise. And so everybody's like, wait, you're going to start a charitable organization <laughs> that's going to help kids on the other side of the world that nobody here has ever met, and you think that's going to work in New York right now? Um, but I'm sure you feel the same way. You know, I find oftentimes the things that people tell you are, are going to be impossible are the most worthwhile to pursue. Yeah, well, there's a great quote: "The person who is who is unable to do something should stay out of the way of the person who's doing it." Yeah, I like something that. Something like that. I like I that. Know. It's yeah. probably better than that. <laughs> My butcher. <laughs> it sounded pretty good. Yeah, but it's it's so yeah. true. I love that. Um, and so you know, I remember explaining to people we're going to use you know social media. And you know, at the time, Facebook was like still a college kid thing. And uh, I just knew that there was going to be uh, the ability to generate large amounts of small donations and that we could say yes to young people, uh, that they could participate in, in great you know, philanthropic um, pursuits. And so I remember explaining it to people, and everyone said to me, like, wait, small amount? That's that Obama thing, right? Because there was no word crowdsourcing. Yeah. Like, we hadn't actually formed it in our language. It was just an Obama <clears throat> thing because he had just done it in the election, and that yeah. was the first time that it was done in mass. And so fortunately, you know, we <clears throat> crowdsourced the money for our first school, and then eventually that became, you know, five schools, and I obviously left Bain to work on it full-time and lead it as CEO. And, um, you know, as of today, we've built more than 400 schools around the world, and we have about 35,000 students in our programs. We do teacher training. We do you know, technology and e-readers in classroom, curriculum development, um, and it's been, you know, incredible. You're still on the board? You're still involved? So I'm, I'm founder and board emeritus. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I also co-led was the search for our new CEO, and, <laughs> and that took a year, a full year-long search with a firm, 700 candidates, before we <clears throat> made an offer. And, you know, our new CEO is uh, not so new anymore. He's been there for almost two years. Michael uh, has been extraordinary. But, you know, one of the things that, 
and I've, I've kind of coached a lot of other people through executive transition, you can't be on that person's shoulder, right? You kind of have to give them the freedom and flexibility to operate. And so the structure that we realized would be best is for me to be board emeritus, which means you know I can go to any board meeting that I want, but you know, I'm not sitting there voting. Yeah. Um, and and I think it was really good for uh, Michael and, and the leadership to have this space to not have me kind of hover. Um, and the other thing is I really wanted to work on Mission U. And so it gives me the opportunity to really be deeply involved in the organization, but not in a day-to-day capacity. Yeah. And you know, as as somebody who was the you know original blood, sweat, and tears, it's such a nice feeling to not <laughs> have it you know on your shoulders. Yeah. And instead, be so proud of this incredible team. You know, 100 plus people in five countries that guide our work every day. Man, I was, uh, I was we were trying to. Uh, reconnect around the last time we spent time together, and I think it was South by Southwest. Um, and at that time, I remember talking. You were still, I think, in the in the, in the like deeply involved in. Pencil oh yeah, I was, I was still the active CEO, and yeah. it was right as the book was coming out. Yeah. Oh, that's right. The book yeah. was coming out. Uh, many of you probably uh, who are paying attention to this today saw me pushing Adam's book, an incredible book. So yeah, entrepreneur, best-selling author now. Um, Tech, would you call you, you call yourself tech? Like, no, well, not necessarily. I mean, I would just say I'm an entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, people people have tried to describe Mission U as ed tech. Yeah. We're, we're not ed tech. Yeah. We're, we're an education model. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a certain paradigm of what college is, yeah. and we're trying to shift that paradigm to include other models. Um, and so I just think of myself as an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's a strange, we have so many friends in common, yeah. and friends were saying, oh, you know Adam and Scooter, and you know, we had, a lot of crossover, and but I had no idea that our lives and backgrounds were so simple, similar. A you know, graduator, pre-graduation, world travel, yeah. um, student debt was a, a thing. Mm. Uh, you mentioned your wife. My mm. wife was a teacher. Mm. You know, I've got Creative Live, which is where we're sitting today. Yeah, um, same, very, very aligned with. Uh, disrupting the that college isn't for everybody, mm-hmm. and that that model is outdated. And if yeah. we have one job. Or sorry, if our parents had one job, we'll have five. The next generation will have five at the same time. And yeah. so, how are they going to be equipped? Because the current four-year model, does, there's just a lot of um, of overlap. And for the folks at home, like, can you give us the overview? I think I understand the vision really crisply. Yeah. But, yeah. But how does it work? Yeah. But but tell us how it works. Uh, it's it, yeah. I'll just let you. That, that's the intro. yeah. Yeah. So so for anyone at home that, that is curious about Mission, obviously you can just go to missionu.com and see it all on the website. But you know, to to get into more detail, um, I'll start with what's broken about college, right? And <clears throat> people are pretty familiar with it, but they don't know how. Um, Dark the numbers actually are. Can, can I just say I'm so excited that yeah. you're doing this. This is normally like <laughs> yeah, someone says, like, tell us how broke the system yeah, is. And I'm the one who's naming this. <clears throat> I can't. I'm going to borrow some of your statistics here. This is please, great. Please. I'm, I'm yeah. almost literally no, I mean, going to be taking I'm, I'm notes. I'm following here. your lead. You've, you've, oh, you've carved no, a path I'm, for people like me to now step into. Help, as well. help me with the narrative. Keep going. Um, so there's two major things that are broken with college. The first is that uh, the actual curriculum that young people are learning in their undergraduate experience is completely disconnected from what employers actually value. Um, so you know, 60% of all hiring managers say that college doesn't prepare young people with any of the critical thinking skills necessary to get a job. You, know, you and I have probably spoken to hundreds of people yeah. there on the front lines of hiring. And even if you have a degree, it's one signal. You know, 10, 15 years ago, that was the signal, yeah. right? It was like, if you wanted to hire somebody 
for your finance department, you looked up what they majored in, and then what grades did they get in stats and microeconomics and macroeconomics, and that's how you learned about them. Now, I don't know anybody that's looked at a college transcript at all in the last five years. I've not even looked at, I've- I don't even know if anyone's graduated from yeah. college that's ever applied for any job that's worked at no, a company. Yeah, I literally have no idea. I've never looked at where a single person I hired went to school, and that's over maybe 200 hires. Right, right. Zero. Yeah, yeah. So, so we have this system that's been telling all these you know, young people for decades, this is the guaranteed pathway to a better job and a better life ahead. And 91% you know, of all freshmen, it's the number one answer given when asked, why are you going to college? The answer is to get a better job. So young people are seeing college as the path to employment. Um, but you know, colleges see their responsibility in the traditional liberal arts vein of to prepare young people for you know, meaning and fulfilling lives and to learn how to learn. And those are all really noble pursuits. Yeah. But the problem is that's not what employers are actually you know, demanding out of the skill sets necessary to get that first job and then ultimately to upskill um, along the way. The second, even bigger issue is that whether or not you finish college, um, young people are leaving school with insurmountable, absolutely crippling debt. So here's the number that, that um, is most shocking to me, and I, I learned this probably two months ago, but what percentage of students that enter a four-year bachelor's degree program uh, would you believe complete in four years? 10%. So it's 18. 18. 18%. Uh, I just go so Yeah, low, yeah. Well, well, I'd prefaced it. I'd, 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 I'd like maybe let it too heavily. So, you know, and you're also way more educated on this space than most. Yeah, you know, I most know, people I ask it to. $32,900 in student debt. Or, but yeah, the I mean, stuff, so yeah, most people it's like, oh, 50, like we just assume that the four-year yeah. system actually works and it doesn't. Yeah. So, you know, we should stop calling a bachelor's degree a four-year degree. It's, it's a six-year degree. So it's, it's about 59% will graduate in six years, which is still not great at all, yeah. right? So um, that said, I mean, as you pointed to, like this year, well, let's just look forward. So, so we've actually projected it out at Mission U. And the freshman class that just started right now that will graduate in 2020, uh, they will uh, graduate with, uh, on average, seven in 10 are borrowers. The average borrower will have more than $50,000 of debt. And these are on really high interest rates, as I saw with my wife's situation. She yeah. got decimated. So to make a very long story short, what they're learning is broken, not connected to employers, and then the actual um, cost of it doesn't connect to the value. So at Mission U, we try and solve for these two things. So I'll start with the debt piece. The way our model actually works is that we think institutions of higher education should invest in their students rather than vice versa. Yeah. Um, and so we charge no upfront tuition at all. If, when you get into Mission U, there's zero tuition. Um, we only recuperate any type of you know, kind of payment from a student um, if and when they're successful. So uh, the way our, our program works is we invest in you for a full year, it's a one-year program. And then at the end of that year, uh, only when you're making $50,000 or more, you contribute 15% of income back to Mission U for three years. So it's really essentially on our shoulders to work with you side by side. It has to be collaborative, as yep. all education must yep. be, to get you to a place where you're making a great wage. And if you don't, then you end up not owing us anything. So we're, we're changing that piece of the model. And then the second is the actual curriculum. We start with employers first, yeah. and so you know we've had hundreds of employer conversations, and we say, you know, what are the skills that you value? What are the jobs that you're looking to fill in the next, you know, three to five years? And you know, we build what we call employer partners. So they deeply advise us on curriculum. We make sure that we're calibrating, you know, our needs to them. Yeah. Um, and then on the back end, we give them early uh, access to our top graduates to consider for hiring. Sure. And so right now, you know, we have employer partners like Spotify, Lyft, Warby Parker, Uber, Casper, Harry's, I mean, on down the line. Yeah, great tech companies. So, that are you know, a lot of companies that, 
You know, when I, I spend a lot of time with 19 to 25 year olds and I say, what are the companies that you wanna work for most? Yeah. And then we went out and said, okay, what do you look for in hiring? So um, it's a one year program, about 90% uh, of it happens online, but it's not uh, pre-recorded lectures. These are live synchronous, you know, virtual classrooms essentially yeah. with industry practitioners, uh, much like you guys are you know, broadcasting yeah, yeah. all over the place right yeah. now. Um, and, but we think it's really important to uh, essentially replace that college experience that you're close enough that you can meet with your cohort. Yeah. So you're in a 25 student cohort and you come together for a three day orientation in every month, either on company campuses, college campuses, or, or co-working spaces. Um, and our first major uh, that we launched with right now is data analytics and business intelligence. But the whole year is kind of crafted around hard skills, soft skills, a little bit of the coming age of, of college. Sure. Well. If you need any content, we've built a lot of it from the I know, by no. the same industry practitioners will yeah. happy to collaborate with you on For that. For sure. I mean that that's part of our, our vision is is to recognize that you don't need to reinvent the wheel, that there are people like you guys that have created incredible content. Yeah. And we want our students learning from that content. So Isn't my it? guess is by the time that somebody listens to this, you know, uh, and sees an actual student starting at Mission New mm -hmm. and, and we opened up admissions in March of twenty seventeen. Our first cohort starts in September and then uh, continues basically on trimesters after that. Um, my, my gut tells me that they'll be taking some creative lab courses. By all means, yeah. open door policy. Um, so I wanna go down a few different angles. So yeah. one is the, and I think this will probably appeal to a couple different cross section of our listeners or watchers. Mm -hmm. One is the sort of the mission and vision and how'd you figure out what you wanna do? Because yeah. there's so many people who are w watching or sitting in jobs they don't love or right. you know the what I've talked a lot about is my own personal experience with the cultural pressure of doing X, Y, and Z to be considered successful. So that, totally. um, and so how you made that that jump. Mm -hmm. Another angle that I'd like to pursue is the startup solopreneur entrepreneur solopreneur turning into an entrepreneur, hmm. where you know you're out here in Silicon Valley now. You're, yep. you're in the you're in the major leagues, mm -hmm. so presumably you raise some money. Yeah, and so that'll maybe tap into the entrepreneurial side of the audience. And then, mm -hmm. then there's the, the one that is actually sort of the learning, like what are some of the things that you stand behind? Yeah. What are some of the, you know, what, what values does Mission you and you personally stand for? Is it creativity, is it innovation? Mm -hmm. um, is it the soft skills you mentioned? Uh, all those things are really intriguing to me given that yeah. we have, you know, I was told Oh my God! You're going to build all your own content from the ground up. You're stupid. You know, five years ago that was stupid. Right. Today, genius. Yeah. Focusing on creativity and innovation and right. and you know the commingling of IQ and EQ. Yeah. Oh, that's so stupid. That's outdated. It needs to be you know just yep. super smart and everybody wants to be a programmer. Right. Right. Now again, genius. Yeah. So why I'm, aren't we doing software engineering? Right. Okay, which we're not doing. Right. So <laughs> yeah. like I want to explore each of those three tangents. Okay. And we'll go back to the first one first. So. Yeah. Um, how did you, I mean, you were in Pencils of Promise, yeah. arguably something you built from the ground up that was, you know, filled a certain part of your soul totally. that was very enriching, and yet at some point there was a voice inside, and I mm -hmm. think, I, I feel like we crossed paths and, and maybe had over a beer. Yeah, you, you, it was right, it was, yeah, it was it right was, in that time, the, time the frame. The seed where, was being planted right around the time that, yeah. that we were together, so. You know, I think part of it was writing a book. So after writing The Promise of a Pencil, you know, the book did really well and it became really big. And so it's been used on a lot of college campuses as the common read. So oftentimes when that happens, I'll go to that college and I'll you know speak at that college. Yeah. And I mean, it's crazy the 
there's not a lot of stuff that really like emotionally moves me when I because because there's been so much emotional yeah. you know like greatness and in, in the work of Fences of Promise and I've certainly you know cried my eyes out many a times in the field at a school opening or you know meeting a family but um, domestically it, it's a little bit tougher but I, I'll tell you like going to some of these colleges I remember going to you know St. Bonaventure or Arizona State where they were using the book as the common read and every kid basically created like an art piece about, around the book, you know, and, and, you know, one girl literally did uh, an illi basically a piece of art that was an image of a, one of our first students, a girl named Newt, who I know very well, but it was done out of pencil etchings, right, and she gave it to me framed. Like, it was so moving and, and just powerful, and so I really came to love spending time on college campuses, because, like, that's, that's why, why I started Pencils of Promise, was the college version of me didn't have an organization that said, yeah. yes, you should be involved, and so... You know, I was spending time on college campuses, and I was trying to really get these students excited and involved in Pencil of Promise. But there was always one question that they would ask me that I would dread. You know, because you know, I'm sure you've spoken in front of audiences yeah, plenty yeah. of times, and there's like the same five questions come up, right? And you're like, all right, I ask me something different besides yeah. these same five. And for Pencil of Promise, it was, um, how do you choose your schools? What? How do you find your teachers? Um, you know, how do you uh, ensure that the schools continue to operate? And you know, right now, 400 plus schools, 100% are open and operational. But there was one question in there that was, what about our problems here at home? That was the one question that I never had a good answer for. You know, it was, oh, it's great what you're doing internationally, but, you know, I'm getting crushed with student debt right now. What, is there anything you can do here? And, you know, my, my answer was always not really because an organization should focus on where it can be most effective and we're focused on international rural poverty um, in the developing world. And then I met my wife and everything really changed because... You know, it was suddenly wasn't just about my journey, it was about the, the shared journey of this person who I was creating a life with. And my wife came to this country when she was nine from South Africa, you know, loving family but without much financial means. And, you know, they really bought into that belief that college is the way to the American yep. dream and a better future. She went to college for about two and a half years, and in those two and a half years, racked up so much debt, had so much financial hardship that she needed to leave early. She's one of 31 million Americans with some credit and no bachelor's degree, but that debt stays with you. And hers continued to grow because her interest rates were so high, even though she was paying you know, somewhere between $300 and $700 a month every month. A month. And most people don't know that that is not forgivable through bankruptcy either. Well, that's what I didn't know. Yeah, that's crazy. So, so she had $110,000 of student debt when we met with no bachelor's degree. And you know, we're moving towards like marriage. And, and I said, look, I wanna marry you. You should declare bankruptcy and be absolved of this decision you made when you were 17. And at least when we get married, you know, I have clean credit, so you can start fresh. And she said, Adam, it doesn't work like that. And I was like, I have a finance background. Let me figure this out. You can add anything, right? And that's when I learned that, that she was right. I mean, it's the only debt in the United States you cannot declare bankruptcy on. And, and it's yeah. with you for life. Not only that, if she left the country or if she, you know, something bad happened to her, they would go after her family because usually if you come from, you know, low income or, or working class family, your family needs to co-sign on your student loan. So yep. they'll go after them. Oh, so yeah. when I learned that, it was so infuriating to me and so such a massive societal injustice that I literally could not process that I was spending all this time internationally and 
I wasn't able to help create an impact on the person who was literally sitting next to me on, on the couch. And there's the gross part, which is that the country makes a ton of money. Oh, yeah, yeah, huge and amounts so, of money. Yeah, the, there's this sort of uh, the overt, outwardly-facing script of supporting education, making it right. easy to get a Pell Grant and this grant. Yeah, this but we make so much loan. money on the interest that it funds other programs that there's not a real political incentive to right. change there's the system. Right, there's zero. The, pl the, the incentives yeah. are not aligned at all right. to, to renovate the system. Yeah, so, so I was really seeing the world through my wife's eyes and realizing that you know my situation was actually uh, the exception and hers was closer to the norm rather than what I believed was vice versa. Once I just started looking up the data and it was yeah. like, oh my God, this system is yeah. really broken. Yeah. And you know, thinking about having kids in the future and building a family, you know, college is supposed to be the one thing that um, creates less divide between the haves and have-nots and allows yeah. for social mobility and it's actually making our society more fractured. Yeah. And, and you have things like the recent election where it was like, regardless of where you stood, you were the opposite of everybody else yeah. the, on the other side of the country. And college should, should be the thing that allows for gray in between, right? So, so that was really the impetus. Um, I think the other thing was just, you know, it's important for, for every person, in particular entrepreneurs, to just know who and what you are and recognize with a growth mindset that you can evolve, but there are certain parts of you that you just know where you thrive, yeah. and and I like starting stuff. You know, I, I thrive in the chaos and the ambiguity we were of just the early talking stages. about before you came to the interview about picking up a rug for the floor of the yeah. new office. Like you got to go screw desks, legs to tables, yeah. and I mean, we had somebody start uh, about a month ago, and he came to us from Bain, right? I mean, world class employer, incredible talent guy, and I sent him an email on Sunday. And I said, just so you know, when you get to the office on Monday, the first thing you need to do is build your desk, and I said it's a rite of passage. Because because it's what we had to do, you know, not all that long ago, and yeah. and I like that. Like he's got to roll up his sleeves and get his hands a little dirty, and and once you've done something like that, you, you know, you realize, okay, this this is startup mode, yeah. right? And you know, fortunately, we have a lot of stuff that immediately accelerates us past the traditional kind of startup phase. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to build something again, and and that's just where I thrive, and I wanted to do something that also, you know, was going to potentially impact my children. Because right after I moved to the Bay Area about a year ago, and this is maybe where we can kind of segue into that, sure. that second topic, um, you know, my wife became pregnant, and, and now we have newborn twins. <laughs> and I, you look great for newborn <laughs> twins. I don't yeah, know so, how you're doing it, but so, you look great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, was, I was telling you beforehand what my, my friend recently reached out after watching this um, video that we used in, in our launch, right? It's this really great video with founders of a ton of incredible companies really talking about how they're struggling to find great talent and how Mission U is a, a really great pipeline that they would want to hire out of. And my friend who did um, the musical score looked at it and called me and was like, we need to talk about this video. You don't, you don't come off very well. And I was so concerned, like, what did oh I my do? God, did I say the wrong thing? Do I sound you know, like a jerk? You know, I, I don't want to go in and reshoot this. We didn't have time, we were launching in a day. And he was like, no, you don't look your best. Like you look like a dad of twins who hasn't slept in a few months. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, oh, of course, man. That that is that's, how I am. Me. This is real. This is real. Um, so you know, um, I mean, one other important like data point that really hit me hard. Forbes put out a study uh, where they projected out what the expected cost of college will be in 2030, and my children will go to college in the 2030s. But in 2030, the expected cost of one year at a private college is projected to be just over $130,000 for the year. And that's post-tax money, right, yeah. for a family. I mean, uh -huh. when, when we're moving towards that place, there's no chance that college is going to be able to be that great equalizer that we want it to be. And now with two kids and like anybody who has kids realizes if you have multiple, 
they're not the same at all. They're total yeah, opposites different. already just in a few months. And if one of my kids wants to go down the traditional path and they can get into a school where you know the, the, the overall like return on that investment is probably gonna be there, I'd encourage them. But I want other choices for the other one who might say, like, I don't buy into this yeah. traditional. And I'm gonna, of course, encourage them to really always ch uh, challenge the norms. So in a lot of ways, Mission U is, is ultimately being built for kind of the institution I would want one of my kids to attend. How hardcore are you about throwing rocks at the existing system? Because I've, I find, yeah. this, is, this is me asking you, like without the c cameras rolling at all, like, yeah. because uh, I'm a product of that. Right. Um, my wife has several degrees. We both had student debt despite, yeah. I was on a soccer scholarship and still mm. came out with some student debt. Mm. Um, so I have a, like, a little bit of a personal bone to pick. Yeah. Um, I felt a bunch of societal pressure to, to live up to the false narrative that if you go to this school, then yeah. you're gonna get a good job. Yeah. And that the data is unequivocal mm -hmm. that if you went to these like 13 or 16 schools, you're disproportionately likely to get hired into yeah. one of these very discrete professions. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, if you get into that second tier of colleges, like the next, the middle 50%, mm -hmm. it's basically all the same. Yeah. So how, and I've, I tend to try and be a positive person because yep. I'd rather put good same. energy into the world. Right. And it's, but it's very hard when I'm standing in, you know, either on the show or in front of stages, yeah. or on stages in front of a lot of people, I'm, I'm keynoting at the ASU education. At, oh, ASU JC. Yeah. So I'm trying to decide how many rocks to throw. Yeah. And you're a great barometer. So what, yeah, where, I, what's your POV on I, I think we're similar in, in that we would much rather put out a message of positivity and aspiration mm -hmm. uh, to any room that we're in rather than one of like doomsday scenario, yeah. right? It's just not how either one of us thrives. Yes. Yeah. But there you know, comes a moment where you recognize that if there isn't some shock applied to this system, yep. that it's the amount of negativity that's going to result from that silence yeah. is is something that I, I can't bear to stand. It is. It's almost the complicence. Like yeah. If, if yeah. you're if you're not vocally against it, yeah. then you're for it. And right. That, there's so much. It is the data that I. That's how I try and live that yeah. truth for myself. Just like yep. here are the facts. Yep. You know, it was a couple years ago. It was thirty-two thousand nine hundred, and you're saying by twenty twenty, it's going to be fifty thousand. Yep. Like it's it's clearly going. It's going growing faster than inflation, yep. faster than yep. any other sort of cost of living metric that we yeah. have. That, so I try and leave with stats. But what about you know? What are I some mean, of the? I would say, one of the. One of the things that's just very true for me is I came out of the system really benefiting. Yeah. So you know, I went to Brown, had a great college education. Fortunately, my parents worked themselves out of their debt, paid down college into their 40s and 50s, were a dentist and an orthodontist, and saved up enough for me to be able to go to four years of you know undergrad. And then basically said, you know, you're going to be on your own. You're going to have four years of college. You go to grad school. You take like you'll be on your own, but we'll we'll save up for four years. Yep. And so I can't say that all college is bad. What I can say is that the bachelor's degree, in my mind, is a harmful construct to society. Yeah. Yeah. The notion that it's a one-size-fits-all system and that everyone has to go get this thing as a mark of validation to get a job is wrong. And that we need more choices. Some students should just take courses on Creative Live because they need certain skills yeah. in complement to the work experience they're going to have, to the traveling, the life experience. Yeah. You know, other students, they, they want that coming of age, and maybe they have a family that can help support them through it, or they can get grants and financial aid, but you know, I'm, I'm not willing to say that all college is bad, because I think a lot of college is great, sure. but college, especially a bachelor's degree, I think a bachelor's degree in particular does not work 
for most people, and most people should be looking at other alternatives. Yeah, and there's another, like the, the construct of school, both, um, you know, both like K-12 mm-hmm. uh, and higher education, the, the, the constructs that people are not aware of that those are based on is the factory. Yeah, which yeah. is literally putting the raw material. Yeah, yeah, it's it's Prussian factory. You put it in at one end. Yep. Things need to move through the factory right. at the ring same the bell, pace. Get them yeah, on the ring the bell one. at the right time, and yeah. then they come out, and they should have a similar body of knowledge that they can mm-hmm. all be tested against. And obviously, that may have worked for the industrial revolution, where the it wasn't where you did gonna, you were going to get a job and have a uh, job for forty years, and mm-hmm. then you're going to get the gold watch and yep. and sail on into your retirement. The fact that that's not true anymore, the fact that we're still building the system on something that was from the 1800s, mm-hmm. and the other paradigm is the farm. Mm. Like, the reason we had summers off is so you could <laughs> yeah. literally harvest the food. And I don't know about your friends, but I don't have that many farmer friends anymore. No, just a couple. Yeah, just a couple, and <laughs> plus they're amazing. But yeah, yeah, like guys from Iowa. Yeah, a exactly, but by and large, we're, you know, yeah, we're, we're living away from this that. model that, that is still mired in that old thinking. Yep. It's horrible. Yeah. Definitely. What's so you like? What, what's keep going on my one, two, three questions. Okay. So the second one was was really about you know, kind of transitioning probably from nonprofit yeah. over to. I mean, we're a public benefit corporation, so you know allows us to raise traditional venture capital, serve our social mission, um, and and it's been interesting and great so far. Yeah. I mean, you know, as much as I love the work of Pencils of Promise. There was this feeling of, at times, being limited because we had to fit into the expectations of everybody else, right? Like, there's just this perception that when you're building a nonprofit, you just can't do certain things, right? I mean, I was talking to somebody this morning, and and I was talking to them about just how much I think of myself as, like, a a marketer in general, right? But then you start to build a venture-backed company, and you realize, okay, well, there's brand marketing and there's growth marketing. And I'm a brand marketer because I could never spend donor dollars on like paid acquisition channels, right. even though it might actually yield more donations and more social good yep. that we could put in the world. But we could never like optimize. We had to get you know a Google AdWords grant yeah. and then you know use whatever we could with with the free you know kind of AdWords we had. Yeah. So you know I think building a company out of New York where I was for the last almost decade and then now doing it in the Bay Area is incredibly different. The Very cultures different. Are, are super different. And you know, I think of myself as like a New Yorker with, you know, probably the interests of, of a Bay Area person. Right, like I'm, I'm interested in how do I really improve the world, and New York tends to be obviously very, you know, driven by like how do you make more money than <laughs> how the do I improve myself? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I move at the pace of a New Yorker, right? And and I, and I just come to see like there's a directness about me that I don't mind telling somebody to their face the truth if it's going to improve their well-being. I mean, I'm not ever going to be mean to somebody for the case, you know, just to be mean to them. But I was excited about kind of coming out to the West Coast with like my sharp, you know, kind of knives in my pockets <laughs> and, and being able to build something with people that I find out here are really interested in how do you improve the well-being of the world and, you know, kind of that intersection that you also, you know, live in, which is, you know, that, that kind of space between technology and education um, is super exciting. And, you know, the, the team that we've built already is extraordinary. My co-founder is just an incredible both educator as well as software engineer. Um, and and also an entrepreneur himself in his own right, and it's it's been super exciting, just you know, kind of creating something from the ground up in a new culture entirely. Yeah, are you at all trepidatious around the term entrepreneur? 
I, I identified as an artist my whole life, mm. and then when I, I started a company that would support yeah. creatives and entrepreneurial uh, endeavors, but to call myself an entrepreneur felt like it felt a little bit um, anachronistic or uh, antithetical right. to my true soul because mm. that felt trendy. Mm. And now I, I can't really escape. I'm right. just I'm You're right in the middle of the yeah. trend of yeah. you know uh, every talented person I know. Not everyone, but a lot of them right. are running off and starting companies because. Yeah. Um, how do you sort of fit in and or escape? How do you identify or disidentify with that? I mean, I identify with it because it's just who I am. Yeah, I I'm mean, a builder too. So yeah, but but I would say like you you got you know to the place that that you felt confident building because like you had this incredible gift and talent around photography, right? You know, I don't really possess that. You know, I have a great ear for music. I'm an incredible appreciator. I have no skill at all. When you throw like a guitar in my hands, I can play four chords and then I'm done. <laughs> or you get three chords on me though. Yeah, yeah fair enough. <laughs> um, but for as long as I can remember, I've just been starting businesses. I mean, you know, I was the kid who in seventh grade was organizing the NCAA March Madness bracket in every school that I ever attended. I was the one who was, you know, organizing like poker games at my camp and you know, taking a rake before like <laughs> that was acceptable, right? Um, you know, collecting basketball cards and um, realizing that I wanted Jordan cards that they were the most expensive and Beckett's magazine was this magazine that every month put out the value of every card that came out and you could literally watch like the appreciation and depreciation of cards and so I, I started collecting cards and soon like I probably had 50 plus Michael Jordans because I just knew how to trade better than my friends could. So I always started things, you know, I started a basketball camp in college that became the largest one in my county and paid for all of my backpacking travels. That's how I paid for everything is, is you know, lessons that became a camp and a business. Yeah. And so, you know, so I the think- the DNA is there without, yeah, the, without yeah. the label. Right, I mean, I, I wish that I identified more as a writer because I love it so much. Um, you know, when people are like, oh, you're gonna write a book, Anyone who knew me had been asking me for a decade because they had been reading my writings that I had been doing as I traveled through my early 20s. Um, but, but for me, it almost feels like, um, I don't want to say disingenuous, but it feels hard like when I go to a dinner to like, tell me what you do, to be like, oh, I'm an author, right? Like I really identify as an entrepreneur. I'm just yeah. someone who likes to build stuff. Yeah. Um, I think what got really trendy and, and probably felt similar to how you felt was when social entrepreneur yeah. became this kind of bubble in call it 2010, 11, 12, and you know, this was around Blake and Tom Shoes really blowing up and suddenly everybody wanted to be like, I'm gonna create good and double bottom line and Pences of Promise was blowing up and so all the time I was kind of like bucketed with this, you know, there was a group of us, yeah. you know, Scott Harrison at yeah. Charity Water, Neil Blumenthal at Warby. These are our mutual friends. Yeah, yeah, all, yeah. All, all close friends um, and, and all extraordinary people but I think we were all aware that like this is a hot, trendy thing. And I don't think any one of us, if you said, what are you, would say, we're, I'm a social entrepreneur. It's just like, we're an entrepreneur and what yeah. we're interested in happens to have a mission behind it that improves the world as well as, you know, for some of the businesses, you know, returns capital. Well, for all those people, my experience of knowing them and other folks that were caught up in that bubble, the conversations that we would have over dinner were like we're scratching our own itches. These yeah, are things totally. that we actually totally. care about, and yep. if someone else is labeling, yeah, then that's just a manifestation of their own yeah. label. Yeah, but but it has been interesting. I mean, another mutual friend of ours, Gary V. You know, he talks a lot about, it, and it's the truth. Like when I see the clips he puts out, I'm like, it, it's true. There are a lot of people who want to be an entrepreneur. It's just not in their DNA. It's yeah. just not who they are. And it's it's one of those things where I see people talking about being an entrepreneur. And then they just, they don't put in the work. They don't like have these sleepless nights that I'm sure you and I have where, <laughs> you know, I was interviewing somebody to, to work at Mission U last week 
and, and I started talking to her about culture. And I was like, I'm very deliberate about culture. And, and she said, no, I want to be in an early stage you know, company. And I was like, do you? Yeah. Do you know what that means? Do you know what it means to eat stress for a living? Like, do you know what it means to literally risk it every single day? When you wake up in the morning, you feel like this thing could live or die based on the effort that you're willing to put into it. <laughs> and that, you know, it doesn't leave when like you turn off your email or when you leave the office, that it's just a part of who and what you are. Yeah. And and there are people who are like, oh, I want to like get an article written about me as an entrepreneur or some company, and they just they don't have the work ethic and they don't have the 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 drive that that creates the work ethic, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what I worry about sometimes is the notion that a lot of you know, people have seen individuals in particular in the Bay Area make so much money so quickly because they started a mobile app and that mobile app blew up yeah. and never generated any revenue or did, you know, any real trend. Like, I would meet people all the time and they'd be like, oh, what are you doing? I'd say, you know, years ago, I'm running Pencils of Promise. And they'd be like, cool, um, I have a mobile app. And I was like, oh, okay, do you guys charge anything? No. And I'd be like, oh, so you're a nonprofit. And, and they'd be like, what do you mean? I'd be like, well, we generate millions of dollars a year and, and you know, we're called a nonprofit, but you're actually a nonprofit because like, you, you have no ambition yeah, no dollars. To, to make dollars. And you know, every time they kind of look at me a little bit confused, but over time, what I saw is there were certain people who really just like, they, there was a cadence you know, to just a conversation with them. And, and it wasn't what they were trying to be, it was just who they are. Um, you know, one of my mentors is a guy, Dan Rosenzweig, who's the CEO of Chegg. Of course. And, oh, and yeah, so, so Dan gives a talk every year that, that I've referenced to a lot of people um, when he gives it, I think, at the New School or, or one of the colleges in New York. And he basically says, look, there's, there's three types of people. There's founders who, like, love the early stage, all ideas, chaos, et cetera. There's entrepreneurs who build through that kind of, like, rapid growth part. And then there's executives who are really important to, you know, optimizing once you're at a certain point. And it's okay to be one of those three and recognize that sometimes you might play a different part. Um, but I think there's definitely a lot of people right now who like want to be the founder, entrepreneur, but it's just not necessarily who they are, and well, that's okay. That's what I'm trying to caution against is the same thing that that we were told that you have to go to school to get a great go to a great school, then yeah. you get a great job. The, the 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 new sort of paradigm that I'm mm -hmm. trying to keep people aware of is hey you you don't want to start a business unless you want to eat breathe yeah. sleep you know yep. this thing and I, I boy we have two really senior positions open here right mm -hmm. now Creative Live not analogous to what you were just saying I was interviewing someone not too long ago within the last two weeks same story like I really want to leave this fill in Fortune 100, right, 100 right. company yeah. Yeah. where you know they're a senior director mm -hmm. with I mean I came in and fathom their salary right, right. and that guy really want to come you know get my hands dirty I'm like do you have you actually understand what get your hands dirty is yeah. at a startup yeah where you're like less than 200 people versus yeah. you're at a company that has 150,000 people yeah. in it like, yeah they get your hands dirty at Apple or Microsoft or yeah. Yahoo or any of these giant companies is so different I mean it is you're telling your guy to put his desk together like, yeah, it's entirely different yeah so we have to let's continue to protect that, yeah. that narrative I don't want people to stumble into this thing it's not for the yeah. light of heart. Well, I mean, one thing that I think light is really cool, though, is... Mixed metaphor, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll blend them all. Yeah. I, I think one thing that's cool, though, is, you know, there's been so much talked about, written about the millennial generation, right? Which, which I'm a part of. We were basically the first. So, you know, I was class of 06 in college. I was Zuckerberg's year. I was at Brown. He's at Harvard. Sophomore year, Facebook starts. And it's like our class, their class, one of the first 10 schools. So, so we were like the first ones to be called this millennial thing and took a lot of pride and like we're different, right? And now you have, call it a 15 year band. It goes down to about 18 year olds. But what I'm excited about is actually the generation behind, right? The five to 18 year olds. 
they are so dynamic. Yeah. I mean, they're create like first of all, they're obviously digital natives. They know nothing but the internet. And and they're makers, like they really build stuff. And so they want to do all of the pieces themselves. Yes, or at least yes. know enough to be able to right. talk to And they kind of question everything. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They're, it's like, you know, when somebody just kind of asks them, you know, to do this, you know, there's almost this inherent like why, right? And, and a lot of times that's kind of leaves us when we're five or six years old, you know? Like, I haven't entered that phase with my newborns, but I'm sure very soon, like, everything I say why? is just gonna be like, why, 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 why? But there's a curiosity there, yeah. right? And we kind of lose that, and oftentimes school is the thing that kind of takes it away, yeah. you know, because it's like, sit still, pay attention, and and that's obviously not particularly healthy for, for a child's development. But um, I think this generation, I, I'm just super excited about it. Like, you know, I feel like a lot of People with age, you become skeptical of the generation behind you. I couldn't be more excited about you know five to eighteen years, and it's also why things like Creative Live and Mission U make so much sense because they're questioning that traditional path and they need you know new opportunities. And let's to learn. just say we owe them that explanation because we're proceeding without the consistent reminder of why we're doing something. We talk mm. about why a lot around here. Mm. You know Simon Sinek speech. Yeah, like we talk about the. You need to be able to connect with the work you do so that you you find yeah. it meaningful. Because if you don't yeah. find it meaningful, you're going to give half, two thirds your, mm -hmm. your your person to the work that you want to do. So I, I think it. It, there's also this, um, while we're talking about that generation, there's this built-in empathy mm -hmm. yeah. that I've never seen before. And I yeah. think for all of the the bad rap that the internet gets, the the connection, mm -hmm. the to be able to see, you know, Scott Harrison build wells mm -hmm. in Africa and watch that live in real time and see what the work that you do, what mm -hmm. impact it can have. Like there's this empathy layer that I don't see in in the millennial generation right. that this group, I have a bunch of friends who have like 10, 12, 14, yeah. 16 year olds, just to have it in spades, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll, I'll tell you the other interesting thing which which is kind of hopefully an indication of kind of the wind being at, at, at our backs and the, the work that we're taking on is um, there's a big Fast Company article recently about this 4,000 um, student survey that was done. It's the first major survey of Gen Z or Centennials or whatever people are gonna call them. And um, one of the questions that was asked is, what are you most concerned about? Like, what's the number one concern? And, and in particular, it was high school students, right? And I think back to high school and like, you know, it was maybe you don't get into the right college or you're bullied by somebody or like your sports team doesn't do well or right. someone's not interested in like dating you or like maybe they want to date you and like that's scary, <laughs> you know, in, in general. But uh, the number one answer that was given uh, amongst that generation of what they're most concerned about I think it was like 66% uh, was drowning in college debt. That was the number one answer. And That's it was beautiful. because they, they've seen their siblings, right? They've seen millennials go out with the belief that we were fed around college and um, then end up coming home and living with mom and dad. It's like some insane, like a third of all millennials live at home right now. I mean, and it's, it's Shouldn't be that way, right? Yeah. But I think that this generation that's coming up is really wise to the fact that college doesn't have to be the only you know way that you can get ahead in life, and and I think you know the work that you guys um, have done and continue to do is is a large reason for that. So I commend you. Well, that this is about you. We're going to try and do what we can to focus on you. I appreciate the kind words, but I think we are all in this together. Yeah, and that's the totally. thing that the that I guess another piece of that debt is that what. Folks at home who are listening to this and thinking that we're throwing rocks at a system that you still believe strongly in, again, we're not disparaging it for the sake of disparaging it. It's just that there a, are many other paths and that mm -hmm. the path that you were sold, it's a different bill of goods than it was some time ago. So yeah, I think that's evolution. hard for, I mean, you know, even, even my, my sister-in-law, 
She's 26, so she went to college relatively recently. Now she went for a year mm -hmm. and racked up a bunch of debt and financial hardship and had to leave, right? Um, and pay that down for the next eight, eight years or so, right? Um, if she's lucky, eight years probably. Yeah, right? I think she had like 15 grand of debt oh, from like one uh, semester and a half or something like that. But I, I won't name the school, but it's, it's not an elite school. It's not a bad school. It's just like that big kind of middle, yep. you know, bucket of several thousand schools that are names, but not a name that an employer is going to look at and say, oh my gosh, I have to hire that person. Yep. And I asked her, what do you think the cost of your school is today? And she said, I don't know. I mean, it was probably like 32000 when I went, so maybe thirty six or thirty eight now. And I looked it up, and that same school today is $56,000 a year. And so I think it's hard for especially parents, right, like baby boomers and whatnot, yeah. to understand how out of control it's got. Yeah, how it's outpacing every yeah. other growth metric. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think, God, what did I, I wanted to say something else about... Um, Oh, you were asking me, the, the third one was like what we stand for. At yeah, Michigan. yeah. So yeah. like, why don't you layer your values mm. into, I mean, I've, you've, we've been picking them up all yeah. along, but like layer your values into Mission U. Um, just yeah, I mean, I, I think the up. first one is, is purely the notion that education should be um, a tool for individual advancement. Right? That, that inherently, when you commit to your education, that it should somehow improve your opportunities in life. And that, at all times, is like our kind of you know, true north, if you want to call it that, as, as an institution. Is if we're not ultimately serving student interests and we're focused on something like institutional preservation or just making sure that like, we're keeping the lights on, yeah. then we should be, frankly, closed down, right? And, and there's probably a lot of colleges that I feel that way about right now. Yeah. Um, I think at our core, the, the purpose of Mission U is to uh, ensure that learning transforms into livelihood. That's something that I really believe in. Having spent a decade focused on education in the developing world, the other kind of, you know, like hand that fits interlocked mm -hmm. with that hand of, of kind of core education yep. is opportunity for dignified work. Um, because you can give somebody great educational, you know, opportunities. But it's almost like cruel to have somebody who's educated and then can't transfer that into some <laughs> dignified work and livelihood. And yeah. you see it all the time in the developing world where people you know, get better education opportunities, but then there's not a work opportunity for them there. And then you also are starting to see it now in like the charter school movement here in the US, where if you speak to any leader of a charter school, the one metric they constantly point to of success is we have 99% college placement, right? 97% of our kids from really tough backgrounds get into college. And that's this huge accomplishment, right? And you can't expect them to do all things. But it, you know, if you sit with them, you say, hey, how do those kids do in college? How many of them finish college? How many of them leave with more debt than they entered? The, the numbers are, are, it's not are bleak, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, not great, you know? And, and so you know, that, that connection that we really want to make is to enable any person, regardless of their background or kind of you know the financial status that they come from, um, to have that opportunity to ensure that their learning really transfers and uh, transforms into livelihood. This is a, a pain point for me, and mm -hmm. I don't know if you've experienced it, so I'll share. Uh, and there's a little bit of name dropping in here, so just bear, bear with me for the folks at home who are listening to this. And it is I um, same thing, very passionate about the non-traditional path, I think mm -hmm. it's the first time in the history of the world that it's more risky to do the traditional thing. Mm -hmm. And I've you know, said that proudly. And then 
through the last you know four years, I got involved with the Obama administration and got to you know work closely at the White House. Mm-hmm. Um, Education is a huge thing for the former first lady, mm-hmm. and the the what was painful for me is there was this sort of acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah, we need to recognize that you know um, lifelong learning or um, you know, continued learning mm-hmm. is great, but the, the, they kept pointing back to this stat, which is the best identifier that we have, the best um, metric for an improved life or a life that where you, you make above the average household income mm-hmm. is a college degree. College degree. And so there's this, it's because it is a thing that mm-hmm. is that you can hang some data on. Yeah. Well, well one thing that's important there is it's historic data. Yeah. It's, 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 <laughs> Past, yeah, right. I, I, and I would agree with it for sure. You could, uh, up until yeah. probably two, three years ago, maybe even, maybe you know, you can make an argument five years ago, whatever it was. Yeah, yeah it was the best yeah. thing you could do going forward. The cost structure and then the, the way that employers look at it. It's, I, I would challenge that. The other thing that anybody can call out is like how much of that is is kind of the person who would go out and is going to do well in life is for obviously sure. the same family that encourages their kid to go to college. Yeah. So. You know, I, I, it's so hard to like pull out, you know, some of the the difference between the kind of signal and the noise there. Yeah. Um, but and you know, it has been something it, that's been harp, you know, harped on a lot. It's my fear that you and I are then now competing with these voices mm-hmm. and um, the first lady, the former first lady, she tells a great story about that's what got her out of the South Side of Chicago. Yeah, in a and, position and, and where they're great. Yeah, great couple. It's, it's, it's right. incredible, but there's this. Because it's something you can point to that's very, um, it's very well formed. It's mm-hmm. very obvious. It's yeah. not m- murky or fudgy or whatever. Right. That we still, as a culture, continue to point to. So if you're a uh, parent or you're thinking you're yourself thinking about going back to school or what should you do for your kids, just you have to, I think, listen to mm-hmm. Adam and others like him when you, th- there's there's more behind the numbers than just the numbers. And it's sort of like the difference between um, Vegas. Vegas takes into consideration all of the odds uh-huh. as opposed to Nate Silver, for example, yeah, yeah, yeah. just looking yeah. at the polls. Yeah. And you gotta take all these signals into consideration. And the, you know this one that you're talking about, about employability, mm-hmm. going to employers like you know, the Lyfts and the Airbnbs and the, the Spotify as the folks that were, you know folks at the company, that is an indication of what the future is gonna bring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right, switching gears. You're a father. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Twins. Unexpected. Double the fun, half the sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever even used that phrase. That's a good feels, one. Though. It feels so true. But you really do look great. I know some people that have kids, and you look better. You know, they, they, they've been very kind. The last month, they've been sleeping through the night. Oh wow. So so we we get them down, you know, around seven thirty ish, and then. Usually my son Dylan starts screaming. This morning he was screaming around five or so, but usually he gives us till about six before he starts. Oh man, it's luxurious. Noise. Oh yeah, yeah, it is. Um, I mean, it's 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 one of those things where you hear so much about it and you think, ah, whatever. They're they're describing it this way, and I'm sure it'll feel that way. And yeah. you just you, you can't describe obviously the the love that you have for your your children. But I, I think the unexpected piece was just how much it changes your view on the world in general. Not just like this relationship that I have with this thing that I would do absolutely anything for, but I mean, the two things that have changed most for me are uh, my priorities. Like the way I treat my time is now very different. 
um, and, and my sense of purpose. Because my purpose up and until um, Dylan and Bela, our, our twins, were born, was very much like, how could I impact as many people as I could in a meaningfully positive way? That was my main driver of, of call it self-worth, of success, was how do I make this you know, really meaningful impact on the world by virtue of impacting as many people as I can in, in a deep, very simple way of measuring it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, you know, probably the two weeks after they were born and they were in the NICU because they came early and, and my wife had some challenges as well. And then I finally brought everybody home from the hospital. And I was like, I don't care about anything except for being in that room, just the four of us. And, and I don't care if I, in fact, another person for as you know, long as I live, as long as us four are, are happy and healthy together. And suddenly this desire to live very big became a desire to live as small as possible. And it was really, you know, a couple of weeks of reconciling that before I started to see them, you know, mature and evolve and start to like recognize their hands and start to, you know, observe objects. And I was like, oh no, they're gonna go out into the world. And now these two things intersect in that, you know, I have this responsibility to still impact as many people as positive as I can, but the core motivation for that is to enable the best world possible for these two to live in. And, and that, that shift in thinking um, was really unexpected. That small thinking is a very powerful vehicle. Like yeah. when, and you realize that this is, the, this is the thing that you want to impact, this thing that you can touch and feel and see. And that's, right. I think that's part of why those big narratives are, uh, or college as a something you can point at is very tricky because you can still point at and touch it. And, but when you go back to your child, mm -hmm. that your child is going to have to go into that world without right. I guess with uh, a bunch of different disadvantages that we don't or that we didn't experience, right. or, yeah. Um, yeah. because it's going to be such a different ecosystem in thirty thirty. Yeah. Wait, twenty thirty. Twenty thirty. I just yeah, skipped yeah. a thousand. Skipped a thousand years there. <laughs> Bad math. <laughs> that'll be really. I have different. no excuse. I don't that'll, have twins. That'll be really. I got different. plenty of sleep. I mean, the. I, I think the other thing that was really unexpected for me was, um, just in that shift in priorities, was you know for a long time I kind of thought like. Uh, you need to make money to support your family, right? And, and, you know, in the town that I grew up in, where, again, my dad's a dentist, my mom's an orthodontist, but it was, you know, where a lot of, like, hedge fund managers and stuff lived about an hour outside of New York. Um, you know, I had a lot of friends whose parents, like, weren't very present, but they were incredibly successful by every mark that society would yeah. deem. And now I look at that, and I'm like, look, the one thing, there's only one thing you can't buy with money, and that's time, right? Like, you can buy freedom, you can buy great medical health, you can't buy back the time that, that you have in your life, and in particular, that time that you have with your friends, with your family, with you know, you, perhaps your children. And, and so that's one thing that's hit me really hard lately, is like, I don't, I don't care about X, Y, or Z if it is not somehow going to, if it's gonna take me away from my children, yeah. um, it has to be worth so much to me at this stage, because the like dollars and cents, I recognize can't buy back that time, and and that's been a recognition that I I um, I, I like wish um, more people saw because I see so many people like oh I just need to make more money because then I could like yeah. buy my kids like this nicer car, and it's like yeah but your kid just wants you around, you know and and I, again I have like four and a half months of experience with twins so <laughs> you know you sound wise I, so so I'm like nobody to give a parent advice, um, but I think it's just something for you know. Um, you know, friends of mine that I've, I've, I've had these deep conversations with that aren't parents yet, where I'm like, look, just know that when they come, you know, yes, you'll be motivated to like financially do well enough to take care of them, but you also won't want to be away from them. How, I'm gonna see if you can reconcile something for me because I get asked a lot about balance and I don't, 
First of all, defining success, very nebulous thing right. to each his or her own. Um, and it's affected by relativity. Yeah, for it's sure. essentially who do you consider your peers. Yeah. What, and what, and yeah. if you're ahead of them, you feel successful, and if you're not, then you feel like a failure. Yeah, regardless. Yeah, it's just about who, how you define what, your peer set. What the bank account is. So let's put a pin in that for a second. And I have um, advocated for the idea that we, it, that balance is impossible. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if it's controversial or not. I think Gary has also said the same thing before. And go back to our friends who are at big tech companies living a very secure life, mm. thinking, oh, I want to come and, and you know, be an entrepreneur or build mm -hmm. a startup, work on the company with less than 100 people, mm -hmm. make some great impact. And, but the sacrifice is massive. Yep. And I don't feel oriented towards balance mm -hmm. with respect to my family, my personal right. life. I have actually had a different approach where I'm trying to blend the things that I care about into something mm -hmm. where when I'm feeding one, I'm feeding the other, yeah, I like or that. I can at least step out and sip some air. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't feel like balance. You just, the something that it was in the way that you said it made me feel like that when you can think of your kids in the way that you do and you want to be in that room, but is that balanced? Do you feel like you have it? Or will you ever have it? Or no, are I, you out of whack just I, like the rest I of think, us? I think the pursuit of balance is an, one in which you will never ultimately be successful if you're actually pursuing something really, really difficult or, and or extraordinary. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to stay in like that kind of like ordinary, and I don't mean extraordinary and like special, it's just not ordinary, yeah. beyond ordinary. Yeah. Ordinary, you can maintain balance. You can say like, all right, I'm going to go to my job for nine to five and I'm going to be with my kids before and after. And, that's, that's totally fine for a lot of people, and, and I have no criticism of those who want that. I want something very different. It's just like how I was raised. It's kind of how I operate, right? And so because of that, it pulls time away from the opportunity to have balance. And uh, a friend of mine years ago said something that really stuck with me in that he doesn't try and achieve balance. He tries to achieve harmony instead. And I think when you think about it in that framing of like harmony is where the notes are all happening, but... Maybe one of them has more prominence for a period of time, and yeah. the other ones kind of play, you know, still in, in synchronicity, but a little bit less prominent, and then others kind of move forward, but they're all always there. That, that feels more achievable for me. And so, you know, I have small practices that I put in place. When I go to sleep, I sleep with my phone in a different room on airplane mode. So... That's how I have nice my job are in Huffington. <laughs> yeah, I mean, otherwise, yeah. like I'm gonna grab my phone and come up with an idea and, and work on it, and, and I do a lot of times. But um, you know, as long as I'm home, my, my phone is separate. And then you know, I get up and feed the babies first thing in the morning, and I try everything in my power to not have my phone in my hand. It's hard because like I want to be getting through emails, but I'm thinking, you know, like this is the the one hour in the morning that I have with my child. Yeah. Um, and then when I go to work, like I'm I'm focused. I mean, I'm real focused. And then you know I come home. I'm exclusively with them for a few hours, and then I get back on the computer and I do some email and you know work and whatnot. Usually late at night, and you know time with my wife, obviously in between. But it's not balanced. It's like it's no, it's, it's not. That's the that's the thing that it's I keep not. coming and, back and, to. And it's hard, but I think the key is to make sure that the notes that you want to experience most in your life are at the highest end of that that you know harmonic frequency. Yeah. And yeah. you can be good at one thing and you can have something else playing in the background. You can be totally. really great at something and then step away from that thing and be great at something else, but you just can't be great at all the things all the time. Yeah, Whether and, it's and you personal, just have to decide. family, yeah. professional. Yeah. I mean, mine right now there's there's three things that I really would like to prioritize. It's time with my family, it's building mission you, and it's personal health. 
And the truth is, I think in the last six months, I've done a really good job at optimizing for the first two and my health isn't as great. Like I don't work out as consistently as I would like. And you know, it's because literally tonight I have to decide between a 7.30 p.m. pickup basketball game or time with my kids. And, and the same thing, Friday mornings, there's an 8 a.m. game, and there's on Wednesday mornings a 7 a.m. run at, at UCSF. And it's like, I haven't played in those games in months because I'm gonna prioritize being with my kids. Yeah. And I hate that I'm not treating my health as the top priority, and I know that's the wrong thing to do. But if it's taken away from time with my kids and I have such limited time with yeah. them, um, I need to make that decision now, and at some yeah. point, the, the, I'll be able to, you know, Get, get to better um, allocation. Well, that's what I love because you just highlighted all the competing ideas yeah. and people talk about balance and there's, I don't know anyone who does anything as hard as you do what you do or anyone who's been on this show who's sat in that chair yeah. has done it sure. that feels content with the relationships that they have relative to their professional ambition yeah. relative to. I think the only time that you, you feel that way is when you've really hit that kind of plateau where like things are going fine, and and you're frankly not all that needed in the business. Like yeah. it's, it's it's moving, and the, and the operators, the executives, yeah. are yeah. like really maintaining it. And right around that time is when you, if you have the DNA that we have, go. Uh, I want to work on something new, so yeah. that like you, you you get back in that flow. And and um, you know I had great like balance. You know the kind of last year that I was running Pencils of Promise, but I was itching for <laughs> six years of yeah. crazy grind, yeah. and then you had caught a year's yeah, worth of sure. balance. For sure, for sure. Uh, actually, that was an interesting transition that you made without my prompting to like some of the things that you do day, day to day. I, mm. I'm, I like habits. I'm a habit freak because yeah. if I don't set some boundaries, I right. It's like my roadmap. Yeah. Um, what are some of yours? Um, so that that that. One phone thing is great. Phone on airplane mode when I sleep is, is really, really critical for me. It's like a big game changer. Um, and I've done it for probably four or five years now. Um, I would say a second is when I wake up in the morning, um, before I ever grab my phone, I go and uh, lean in the opposite direction and I acknowledge my wife in some capacity, whether it's just like an arm on the shoulder or you know something small. Um, I, I focus my energy, my time, my well-being is going to be connected to her before I connect to the flood of emails and technology, and it just changes the the dynamic of my day. Because if I go straight to the phone, it's like, all right, this is yeah. going to be stress, and and that's fine. But if I start with her, it's like, okay, here's the foundation. Um, and then, I mean, certainly, you know, time focused with with the kids in the morning. Then, I, you know, I I tend to do um, like either phone calls or whatnot uh, from home first thing, like starting around eight eight thirty, and then I head into the city. Um, you know, for, for work and whatnot. And then, you know, another one for me is um, that uh, when when the weekend comes, this was a family tradition I've always had, but like we light candles on Friday nights and we have a dinner as a family. And, you know, we're Jewish, so it's Shabbat, but just just that moment to just stop and, and kind of be grateful for the week that you've had, all the ups and downs, and then be present with your family and friends and loved ones is a really important ritual. And then the last one for me is I write. Um, I have you know a, a journal in my bag at all times, and you know anywhere s between, let's say every other day and maybe once a month, I'll, I'll I'll find time and I just write. And I don't write for anybody to ever read it. You know my expectation is no one will ever read any of the dozens of journals that I filled up, but it's my opportunity to get out my essential truth. And there's just a lot of um, like personal realizations and breakthroughs and 
you know, um, honesty. What's the mechanism? Like, do you give yourself five minutes? Do you write whenever you're inspired? Because sometimes if you're yeah. busy as shit, you don't get quite so inspired. Like, you know, I, I would say... What's the, what's the, what are some of the rules? If Scarborough. I was to look at most of the journal entries, I'd say more than 50% that I've written in the last five years are written on airplanes. So I don't connect to Wi-Fi on flights. This is another big thing for me. I mean, probably like you, I travel all the time. <laughs> I was on a flight this morning. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I don't connect to Wi-Fi on flights unless it's like absolutely, I mean, you know, when we were launching Mission U and I was flying around the, yeah. the week leading up to it, probably three times I connected. Yeah. One of them was a flight to Singapore, so it was like 20 hours or whatever, yeah, 16 this, hours. This is some valuable time. Yeah, um, but in general, I don't connect to Wi-Fi on flights. It's the time for me to um, decompress a little bit, and I, I usually create content then. So if it's, you know, some materials for the organization, a presentation, um, but I usually end up writing. And I write until... I feel like my cup is full. Um, so, you know, I reflect on usually family-related stuff, but I, I also really try not to write the, um, like, here's what I did and here's what I experienced. It's not the what. It's, it's really the kind of interpersonal depth of, of experience and emotions and feelings and getting to what do I actually really believe right now and what do I want to do to improve the next, you know, whatever, week or month or years. Um, and, and that's usually what I write. And it, it can be anywhere from, you know, three pages to like seven to eight pages. But these are kind of like leather, leather bound journals like that big. Small pages. Yeah, they're not big. So is one of the things that you write about some of the things you're, that are challenging you? Oh, always. All right, yeah. let's, let's figure that out. Like what's, you know, we've talked a lot about great opportunity. Mm -hmm. You've um, been able to follow your dreams on a couple different, couple different paths. Mm -hmm. um, you're around people that you love. Yeah. Um, if you're sitting at home right now, you're like, wow, Adam's really got his shit together. This <laughs> looks great. It looks great from the outside. Yeah. But we all know that the stories we do, we tell, right. we sit down here in interviews and you've done enough yeah. of them, I've done millions just like you, that you know, you, your highlight reel, mm. people are at home comparing them to their day-to-day -day lives. Yeah. So what are some things you're struggling with that you could share with us? Sure. Um, I, I think this, this question of um, am I willing to miss anything in my kids' lives is a big one for me right now. Um, you know, very personal anecdote, but uh, about two weeks ago, so for, first of all, maybe two months ago, uh, my son Dylan rolled over for the first time, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but like as a parent, each of these milestones are a really big deal. You know, like they're not talking yet, so like rolling, literally pushing themselves and flipping over is like a big deal. And usually babies do it around, you know, three, four months. And my son Dylan is just a little tank, and he did it <laughs> two months. And I was away, and I missed it, and I was really like a little heartbroken, right? Like, oh, I wish I was there for it. And, you know, my, my daughter Bela, I got a text from my wife about two weeks ago. And she was like, Bela rolled over and she sent me basically the tail end of the video where like she had just kind of flipped over. And I, I had the biggest smile on my face, but there was genuinely a part of me that like wanted to cry. I really felt so sad that I had missed mm -hmm. this moment in both, not just one, but both. And yeah. with twins, it's like double yeah, it's um, in so many ways on the emotional spectrum that um, there was this part of me that was like, I, I, I can't miss these other things, right? So, so that's one thing I'm really struggling with is how do I um, you know, craft the career that I want, which includes you know, public speaking. I mean, like you, I, I do a lot of it. And probably like you, you know, it's, it's not just because it moves things in a positive way for your business, but um, I hope I say this humbly, but like you put me on a stage and I know I can change people's lives in that room. Yeah. Not, not in a small way, like the whole trajectory of their life. Yep. can and will change. And it's not with everybody. Couple, yeah, with a couple of but, ideas. But, yeah. A handful of people, handful of ideas. I mean, if it's, if it's a yeah. three to 400 person room, 
somewhere between three and 12 people in that room, their life will change. And, I'll, and I get the emails every day, yeah, you know, like somewhere powerful. between three and seven or eight emails because, you know, adamandiapromise.org is in the back of my book. And most talks I give, it's like, just reach out and contact me. And I, I, I value that, right? But that also means I need to be away from my family. And, you know, I have this, this creeping up desire right now to write a second book, which I haven't felt in years. You know, I just wanted to write the story of Pencils of Promise and, and the lessons learned. But now, just seeing what's happening and, and this higher education space, like, you know, I want to write this book about um, essentially, you know, the, the reinvention of the American dream. Because the American dream stood for something um, for a long time. It was, it was uh, created in 1931 by a guy named James Truslow Adams in a book called The Epic of America, which I own two copies of. Nice. And, and you, it's really hard to find. But it's this one-volume history of the United States. Like, I mean, literally back to when most of the continent was covered by trees. And, um, you know, he, he codified this idea of the American dream, and it shifted recently. And I want to, like, write about that. But as you know, you, you know, you, you put out content, and, like, you need to travel to go spread the word around it yeah. oftentimes. So, so that's a big one for me is how do I reconcile my professional ambitions with my desire to be present, physically present with my family? Um, and it will continue. I mean, I've told my wife, like, I plan on coaching all their sports teams. I, I want to be that dad, <laughs> right? right. Like, I my dad know. coached a lot of my sports teams, and I, my wife's like, pick one sport. You can't coach them all. And I'm like, ah, it's, it's like sixth grade. Nobody <laughs> is that good anyway. You know, it's not like you have to You're be You're not going to jeopardize someone's college career at sixth grade. <laughs> There's not, like, pro soccer players coaching fifth grade, you know, like, soccer in umbro shorts and orange peels. Um, so, you know, you, you, you have to build your business to a certain place where, you can be present for those type of things. And, and so that's a big one that I'm, I would say, definitely you know, challenged by. Um, and then, and then a, a second one is, is really just this idea that um, you know, the system that I, I really want to challenge is one that's so incredibly complex. And, and you know it so well. Like Education is not transactional at all. You know, it's, it's, it's really just such a human experience. And um, Inevitably, there'll be you know challenges ahead. There'll be blowback. There'll be you know stuff that doesn't work out perfectly because you can't just inject somebody and they're educated, right? Like yeah. you need to really foster that experience, and that's that's a daunting prospect. But it's it's one that you know certainly I I, I want to take on. Something where the problem is so big that it's hard to figure out where to start. Right. And then yeah. you just, it's like just probably you got to just start digging the ditch wherever yeah. you're at right now. Yeah. Just start yeah. digging because it's all yeah. gonna it's all gonna go to the good side of. Mm -hmm. The story. So, uh, before we wrap up, just a couple random. Yeah, hit me. yeah. I'd like to finish with some randoms. Um, what are you doing culturally right now? Are you, you have some music that you're excited about. Do you have some mm. films you're excited about, or is it is some and and all focus on the home is actually a totally fair. You're four yeah. months into a, yeah. being a dad, but uh, I, this ends up being a great. You know, we've hosted amazing musicians yeah. on the show before, and I yeah. like to keep a keep a pulse on culture. Some of my friends um, are listening to or yeah. I mean, reading. honestly, lately because I have about a thirty minute commute every day, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts. Yeah. So right now, I'm in the midst of S Town, ooh, which is really good. Uh, it's the number one podcast in the podcast store. It's, it's by the Serial Creators. Um, I just wrapped up, wrapped up um, missing Richard Simmons. Which was also wildly wow. entertaining and fascinating. Wild, right? I, um, I haven't listened or watched. Yeah, that there. was really good. I saw some um, press around it. It was crazy. It, it was. It was great. Um, so that's kind of on the podcast front. Uh, let's see. On the music side, you know, I'm I'm still kind of cycling through a, a lot of my my classic, like a lot of Radiohead, 
a lot of uh, Jack White. Um, but um, I just went to see this guy named Davey Knowles, really good rock and roll blues musician. Cool. Who was Here great. in the city? Uh, out We're in, in San Francisco. Out in Marin. Oh, Marin. nice. Yeah, played my local venue. Wow, that's yeah. right, you're in Marin. You came in, yeah. uh, thanks for coming all the way in here. I know our office is in the city, so I'm here every day. Um, where are you guys, roughly? Uh, we're uh, about a block and a half from Union Square. Oh, nice. So yeah, not too far. Um, investors? Yeah. You, guys, you like to talk about them, don't like to talk about them? I'm fine with that. Sure. Um, you know, we, we raised our, our seed round back in October 2016. Um, First Round Capital is our lead investor, so you know, by guys. all accounts, you know, premier investor to have Amazing at, at the stage. You know, um, for the top education investment funds, and then a whole bunch of just really incredible angels. You know, people who had great built, uh, built great businesses, people who, you know, kind of saw what we were creating and, and believed in it long term. Yeah. What about the? I have a tough time. I, this is personally motivated question. I have a tough time identifying with ed tech. Mm. People say, you know, Creative Live, and then I'm always the black yeah. sheep yeah. at any education conference, right, right. or if I'm yeah, on I a can panel. Yeah. If I'm on a panel, I'm sitting <laughs> yeah. next to these, and there it's all about measurement, right, and, right. you know, how do you process outcomes, and what's, you know, and I'm like, people watch our stuff for three hours at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, 22 minutes is the average time you spend on Creative Live on a mobile wow. device per session. Wow. So we, we focus on engagement, helping people yeah. you know, tap into their passions. And it's so out of whack with, right. with all of the other stuff. So yeah. how do you, how do you reconcile, do you try and reconcile those? Are you just, are you just Adam from Mission U? And you just, I guess, or is it too new for you? Um, you know, I've been in the education space for a while now and I never considered myself, like I would never self-identify as like, I'm an education Wonk yeah. or whatever, yeah. you know, like I, I'm, and I'm also not an educator personally. Yeah. And I'm very upfront about that. I'm an entrepreneur who believes in the value of education. And so I try and build organizations and companies that can have transformative impact there. But, you know, I, I mean, in general, there's usually kind of three audiences that, that are going to interact with your company or your service. There's, you know, the kind of consumers in our case, that's like parents and, you know, students and, and teachers, you know, in, in high schools and guidance counselors and whatever else. Um, then there's like the other side, the businesses, right? And then there's like your industry people, and the two that I really value, and and you know it's important to like acknowledge the the importance of all three, but you know I can tell you like this this um, this past week, um, you know this, this article came out in Inside Higher Ed that was titled um, uh, "Here's Why This Traditional Academic Welcomes Mission You," because a different article was written about us in a different publication. Um, that was a really great profile, but in it they interviewed some traditional academics, and one of them said, I can tell you that traditional academics will hate this with a passion. So this was this guy's counter saying, I'm a traditional yeah. academic, and I actually believe in it. And this whole like Twitter war started, and all these traditional academics were kind of like, you know, challenging basically what we were building, and, and I just decided to kind of, you know, poke, poke my head in the ring and, and basically, you know, shared where I stand, right? And so, and my gut tells me, there's so much that's being done in K through 12, that tends to be, the, I think, the type of folks you're talking about. Yeah. Right now, the, the higher education space kind of feels like the Wild West, yeah. from, from what I'm gathering. Um, and it's a really exciting place to be. Like, I, I wouldn't love... want to be focused in K-12 no. right now, because it's a lot of, like, former teachers that are, are building products, but they're not, again, entrepreneurs at heart. And they have the best of intentions. That's one thing that's really cool to see. Yeah. Everybody in the space has the best of intentions. And they do know what needs to be built, but they don't know how to build it well. Right. I don't right. know, there's like a weird yeah. conundrum yeah. happening. But the higher ed space, yeah. you know, most of the people that I've met thus far, 
I like them. You know, I mean, it's it's definitely a little bit feels like the Wild West because everybody acknowledges that it needs to shift, and so there's a lot of people with a lot of backgrounds coming into it, and I'm just happy to be a part of it. Especially when there's that much money at play. Right. And right. There's yeah. So much money, so yeah. much opportunity for disruption. Yeah. It's it's there's not going to be a one winner take all situation. Not at all. Be so many different flavors. Yep. And, yeah. Um, awesome. So last question. Is there anything that people would be surprised to know about you that if you like, this is something that most people wouldn't know that if you told yeah. them they would be surprised? Like, no way. That would need <laughs> to be the, that would question. need to be the moment that people are sitting. I'm like, no way. I would have never guessed that. Um, man, I'm trying to think of what people would be absolutely shocked with. I, I mean, here's the truth. I'm naturally very introverted. When when people learn that they're like nah that's not true because they because they've either seen me write books you yeah yeah they see me like speaking at at an event right and they're like oh like you seem really natural on stage and oh here's a perfect one um i was so nervous about public speaking for so many years that my family physician had to prescribe a beta blocker for me which is basically like a, a pill that allows your nerves not to become overcome by the adrenaline that it can't handle. For basically, call it 2007 to 2009, if I had to give a presentation in front of four people I worked with at Bain, I wouldn't sleep for weeks in wow. advance. And so anyone that, that believes that public speaking is something that you have to be born with, it's not true at all. Like I'm case in point of somebody who could not have been more nervous about the notion of public speaking probably the first dozen times I did it. And now I'm like, ah, like, you know, give me 2,000 people Bring in, in a state. Great, let's, let's go. Um, and, and it's actually part of the core curriculum at, at Mission U is the, the first quarter is eight hard skills and one of them is, is public speaking because I really believe it can I'm, be caught. I'm going to pull on that a little bit more because that's just too yeah. good because it yeah. is such a big fear for So what's your mindset when you go into public speak? Um, you know, the mindset has to be... Do you memorize? Do you have slides? No. Do you memorize? Do you, no. Is it all from the heart? Yeah, you know, like three main I, points. I, I have slides. I, I don't memorize anything. I mean, I've given some college commencement addresses, and they were like, the president would like to see your remarks. And I was like, well, there are no remarks. I mean, I'm going to put create notes on a note card the, literally in the hour leading up, and then I'll put it on the, and I'll talk from there. So, you know, my advice for people is, one, speak about something that you know. You know, you get really nervous when you're speaking about stuff that you don't know that well because you feel so like the true. imposter syndrome. Yep. And, you know, when I was at Bain and I had to speak about industries where I wasn't necessarily an expert, but I'd learned a lot in three weeks, I was always worried they're gonna kind of see through the, the holes. But you know, if, if you have to give a presentation about what you did on Friday night, that's a lot easier because you know it. Yeah. And so you know, one, speak about content that you actually know, in particular if you've lived it, it's even easier. I think the mindset needs to be that you are just telling a story to a friend. And you know, I really focus on eye contact when I talk in, in front of rooms. You can kind of tell the person that's like kind of wandering around and not actually making eye contact with anybody. I'll, I'll, you know, in the first five or ten minutes of any talk, it's pretty clear there'll be someone that's like really locked in and jazzed about yeah. what I'm saying, and I try and speak to them. I mean, you know, I'll look around at different people, but if you can basically before you get up on that that stage or that podium or whatever it is, not think about, oh my God, I have to address 200 people, and instead be like, I'm just going to tell a story to a friend of mine. Um, I find that it, it, it makes it much easier. And then the last thing is basically know exactly what you're going to say in your opening and know exactly what you're going to say in your closing line. And everything else can meander. But I've seen people give great speeches and then they kind of fumble the finish. Yeah. And they like, leave feeling oh. disappointed. You've and seen that audience. in a movie and it never goes well. When exactly. So, you know, I especially when I used to be super nervous, I'd get up there and the first thing I'd say is, hi, my name is Adam Braun and I'm the founder of Pencils of Promise Nowadays. Hi, I'm you know, Adam Braun. I'm the you know, founder of Mission U. 
And it just kind of allows me to feel like I'm introducing myself the same way that I would to someone that I would meet at a you know, cafe or restaurant. And then it's a familiar talk. And then I know, you know my closing line. And everything in between, you, know, you can figure your way out through. Thanks, bud. Hey, it was a pleasure. You guys, Adam Braun, check it out. Mission U, what are your coordinates at Mission U? Um, so just missionu.com is the website. Okay. Um, anybody can email me at any point in time, adam at i, just letter i, promise.org. And then we're on social media for everything, just at missionu, M-I-S-S-I-O-N-U. Good luck getting one of those 25 spots if you're one of the thousands of applicants. And we'll see you next week for another show. All right, that about wraps it up. But before I let you go, I want to say, A, a huge thank you. B, let you know how to find me. I'm basically at Chase Jarvis all over the internet, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, I'm very active on Snapchat. You guys should check it. If that's a platform that you enjoy, uh, check me out there, as well as all the other ones. It's a super important ask for you to share this. Also, uh, subscribe via iTunes, SoundCloud, and or Stitcher. And most definitely, if you're willing to put in a little bit of extra juice, please leave a review on iTunes. That helps make our podcast more visible. Last place that you can check it out and, and get some additional value is in my newsletter, which is chasejarvis.com slash VIP. That is where I put content out before it hits my social platforms. So that's sort of the insider track. Leave comments all over the internet for me. I will track them down and respond as best I can. And uh, again, huge thank you for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to the next episode already. I hope you'll join me next time.